Welcome back to the Dorothy L. Sayers podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Scholl, and we're returning after a few months break to learn about one of the most remarkable, diverse thinkers of the 20th century. Today, we're going to take the broad view of Sayers. More Sayers for more people. She'd probably snort with laughter at this title, but I'm leaving it because I think it's what we need to hear. I was recently reminded of an article published about a year and a half ago proclaiming that Sayers was wrong. Just wrong. Now, it turns out that the article was addressing one essay that she had written about one topic in which she really wasn't highly invested. And it's possible she may have been off a little bit. The article did have some good points, but it got me thinking about the many ways in which she was right. In truly remarkable ways. Ways that we should imitate if we only knew about them. So today we're going to talk about the value of her work and life as a whole. And I think if we had a good understanding of these things, we would be holding her up as more than just a good writer. So we've got five reasons here why there should be more sayers for more people. Number one, you can be like her. Sayers had a fairly remarkable, but also fairly mundane life. Her books were read in England and America for three decades and translated on continental Europe, but at the height of her career, she was at home taking care of a husband who had PTSD, keeping a pig to help feed the household, this is post-war Britain after all, and begging off late engagements because she had to get home and cook dinner. As much as she proclaimed that the work of a person was paramount, she often had to squeeze it in between other duties. You probably already have a life like Sayers. There are things you really want to do and feel called to do, but you're fitting them around driving, washing, cleaning, responding to emails, straightening out insurance, whatever those daily challenges are for you. You should take this as an encouragement that Sayers, like so many other writers, was dealing with daily realities while wrestling with lasting ideas. I think this actually gives her an understanding of the people that she's creating or studying. When you encounter her treatment of Dante, for example, we talked about that a little bit last season, but she deals with him kind of like a real person, as in he had a sense of humor and he tried to convey that. And yes, he was prideful, but yes, he was humble and so on and so forth. Now she gets a lot of this from Charles Williams's treatment of Dante, but I think also her own personality and her own day of, way of dealing with life. She really did see people that way, even great literary figures such as Dante. I want to read to you an excerpt from a letter written in 1948 to one of her old school colleagues living in Africa. This has nothing to do with Dante. I'm not talking about Dante today. He creeps in sometimes, but, you know, we're, this is not a Dante talk. This letter, I think, will be just an encouragement and just an insight into just kind of the regular life of Sayers. So here we go. Let me get the book here. All right. This is from volume three of the Dorothy Sayers, uh, Letters of Dorothy L. Sayers, published by Dorothy L. Sayers Society. Okay. 15th November, 1948. Dear Eleanor, how nice to hear from you after all these years. Your African home sounds great fun. I can't manage to be quite so back to nature here, but we do our best with log fires on the open hearth, one cat, one parrot, five hens, and this year a pig, who has now, poor dear, departed from us to be made into bacon. She worked out at about 15 stone, and I think we shall have to boil the Christmas ham in the washing copper, as no other vessel is big enough. It is sweet of you to suggest sending me food parcels. I have been getting along pretty well, having many kind friends in Australia and the USA. And now things are easier, except for sugar, because a lot of goods have come off ration. I make my own jam and marmalade when I have the sugar, and have now more or less got on top of the cooking fat problem. 
because of the welcome appearance on the market of frying oil of a very superior kind, made from tea seed of all things. Also, the pig provided a good deal of excellent lard. Tea, sugar, and sweets are what we shortest, are shortest of now. But I'll tell you what I would be most grateful for. You're, you remember old Fraulein Famer at the Godolphin. That's Sayers Old School. She is over 80 and living in great poverty in the fringe zone, having been twice bombed out in Frankfurt. I have been sending her food parcels when I could, but we are only allowed to send goods that are rationed or on points. And now there is hardly anything we are allowed to send because so many controls have been taken off. If you could manage to send her some fats and marmalade and butter and things, it would be a tremendous joy to the poor old girl, and she would be terribly pleased to be remembered. And then she goes on, she talks about a little bit of her work, and then she finishes with, I was delighted to hear all your news, and I shall be most grateful for the parcels. But remember poor old Fraulein Famer, if you can. With all good wishes and best remembrances, yours affectionately, Dorothy. Um, it's just a neat letter because it's a very realistic letter and it, you know, just all the things at home that she's dealing with. She has a fairly good opinion, fairly good awareness of what's in her cabinet and her pantry. And of course she's, you know, she's remembering this person, her old teacher, her old German teacher um, who's been stuck in this, you know, victim of this kind of the war really. And trying to divert things her way as well. Anyway, I just kind of like it. Okay. So, by the way, this the letter in that volume is sandwiched between a letter to a bishop who had thanked her for giving a lecture on Dante, and then a letter to E.V. Rue, the founder and editor of Penguin Classics. So there in the midst of her great calling are, is this little letter to a friend, and there are several letters like that. Um, another biographical note. So this reason is you can be like her. I guess this isn't so much a you can be like her note, but in a sense you may kind of be like her, depending on what your situation is. Uh, she had one major scandal in her life, but that was early, and she did what she could to make it right. You may have already heard about this, but, you know, she had a relationship with a guy named John Kernos that went pretty sour. I think it was in her 20s, and she rebounded um, with a guy named Bill White, I think, and he, you know, they had a baby, and uh, but White was already married, actually, and he wanted nothing to do with the child. And Sayers was just starting her on her career. And she, so she delivered the baby. She ended up giving the child over into the care of her cousin who had a, a charming little home for children. And that's where young Anthony Fleming, her son, was raised. Her parents never knew about this, their grandchild. Um, at some point, Anthony learned that she was his mom, but I think it was a long, long time. And she did, however, visit him in the guise of somebody who just really cared about her, who took an interest in one of Ivy's, her cousin's, you know, charges. And so she's, she did what she could to send him money and to give him advice and so on and so forth. And that was, that was what it is. Then she later on married, um, the husband officially adopted, uh, Mac Atherton Fleming officially adopted, um, Anthony, but Anthony never came to live with him or anything like that. Anyway, I don't want to get into the weeds of that, but I do want to say that people make mistakes. And sometimes mistakes disqualify you, as Paul says, for the calling. Sometimes uh, with repentance, you can make it right. And Sayers had that in her life. Okay, this does lead us to the next point. She didn't want to be a role model. In one of my Roman Minute videos, I talk about nolo episcopari, which means I don't want to be the bishop in Latin. 
Often the best people in a role don't want the responsibility that they're requested to take. And the title Nolo Episcopari comes from these bishops in the usually third and fourth, fourth century who being a bishop was a pretty stressful then at times. And sometimes they would literally hide uh, to avoid the task. And Ambrose wasn't even a Christian when they appointed him to be bishop. So he really didn't want to be bishop, but they kind of forced him into it and it turned out okay. Anyway, it is a cruel twist of fate that people who are often qualified for leadership are the exact same people who really don't want it. Now, Sayers never laid claim to the title Christian apologist, although she often did defend Christianity later on in her life, especially. She spent much of her time actually turning down requests for her to speak on this or that subject. She didn't mind writing about Christianity because she wanted to write about what she was called to. Um... But she did, if you, if you really start looking at the number of her lectures and everything, she, she talked on quite a few issues. Uh, in fact, on episode one of this podcast, I talk a little bit about her discussions with C.S. Lewis on this very matter, the responsibilities of a Christian writer to respond to requests to speak up about certain things and uh, whether or not that was her calling or not. A great example of Sayers, kind of go back to the point she didn't want to be a role model. A great example of Sayers not wanting to be in the spotlight is her treatment of the creeds of the Christian church. It's one of those great exasperations of her life that when she wrote about Christianity, those pieces were often represented as her view of Christianity. In her preference to, sorry, preference, I mean, it is a preference, but in her preface to Mind of the Maker, which is perhaps her most theological book, after a discussion of the Doctrine of Trinity, she reminds us that, quote, this, I repeat, is a Christian affirmation. It is not my invention, and its truth or falsehood cannot be affected by any opinions of mine. End quote. Now, her book does contain a unique argument, but it's not about the Trinity. And even that argument is a commentary on an established doctrine, not, as she says, quote, an expression of personal religious belief. End quote. That's all well and good, you say, but everyone wants to hide their opinions in some sort of fact or argument, don't they? I mean, it's just, I'm just saying it's, it's not my opinion, it's fact. I mean, sometimes they're hard to discern. Maybe it all comes down to their opinion. Maybe Sayers is just slipping herself into the spotlight in a different way by, way by saying, oh, look, those are the creeds. I'm talking about the creeds. Well, I mean, that could be. But Sayers does affirm repeatedly that the mind of the maker is, quote, just the same old arguments founded on the same old dogmas. And she repeatedly re refers inquirers to another book by another author published on Christian doctrine. So when she gets letters about the mind of the maker, she says, hey, you really should read so-and-so's book, Christian Doctrine. Uh, don't take my word for it. Take his word. And indeed, the mind of the maker itself is not original in that the theologians of her era, 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 let me try that one more time, era, particularly Catholic and Greek Orthodox, affirmed that it was in keeping with proper church teaching. Several of her letters indicate how relieved she was to hear this, that she wasn't doing any new theology. Now, I'm not saying she's the most humble person alive. She had a great opinion of her own strengths and of her own calling. But I want to read to you another quote. This one is to the abbot of One Downside Abbey, who he had reviewed The Mind of the Maker. And this quote is from volume two uh, from her letters. And volume two is published by St. Martin's Press. Okay, so I think this captures her attitude well concerning her role in the universe. In particular, too, I want to thank you for your resolute support and refusing to regard the book as a personal angle on God. I am weary of this evil, adulterous generation with this monstrous deification of insignificant personalities. If a thing is not true in itself, the fact that I say it will not make it any truer. 
nor is it any addition to God that a popular, and for Sayers that meant like kind of not kind of low, kind of common, novelist should be so obliging as to approve of him. Okay. Reason number three why there should be more Sayers for more people. She wore dresses and she wore trousers. Now, this is probably not too dramatic, but in her day, almost every woman wore dresses, especially in public. So why did she wear trousers? Was she a rebel? Well, I don't think that, uh, I don't think she identified with being a rebel. She wore trousers for the simple reason that they were comfortable. And as she points out, she happened to have two legs. But there's also this lovely picture of her, photograph of her when she's older, and she's got on this floral dress, fancy hat, and a broad smile. So she kind of did both. A sub-point of reason three is, obviously, she was a woman. Now, that's not necessarily a reason why more people should read more Sayers. I put this as a sub-point because she didn't want to be known primarily as a woman. She found it intolerable that everything a woman did was to be seen through the filter of her sex. Like, I'm a, I'm a feminine, feminine dentist or something. She wanted to be known for her work. But if you're looking for women role models, she's a good one. Because she was a wife and, in her way, a mother who accepted these roles alongside her role as a writer, speaker, friend, and so on and so forth. Reason number four, more sayers for more people. There's something for everybody. Okay, so this actually is not entirely true, but she's for a lot more people than are reading her. Every Christian interested in C.S. Lewis should also be reading Sayers. Let me say that again. I really think that every Christian interested in C.S. Lewis should also be reading Sayers. Like Lewis, Sayers wrote fiction and popular theology. In fact, as the author of this great book that I just finished, it's called... Dorothy and Jack, The Transforming Friendship of Dorothy L. Sayers and C.S. Lewis by Gina D'Alfonso. Uh, Baker Books, published 2020. Anyway, as D'Alfonso points out, Sayers and Lewis, now we know that they wrote back and forth, that they were friends, right? I mean, there's a whole book about it now. They were kind of lonely in their own little world of trained academics. Okay, it was a super small world. In fact, they were maybe the only two that we know of, that they were trained academics spending their careers to reach non-academic Christians. Now, Sayers didn't teach at a university, but she was trained as an academic. So both Lewis and Sayers were trying to reach non-academic Christians. And that kind of put them, especially Lewis, that put him in kind of a rough position where he was in Oxford. In some ways, Sayers is a great counter to Lewis, not because she disagreed with him, although on occasion she, she did, but because she was his peer on so many levels and could challenge him in ways that we, as inheritors of his work, as people who have been shaped by his work, we really can't. Not without sounding shrill or something. I would highly recommend this book, by the way, Dorothy and Jack. It's not, oh gosh, it's hmm, 170 pages or so. Very accessible, well-written, well-documented. If you like Lewis, if you like Sayers, I would get this book. A subpoint here, and this relates back to point one, like you can't, you may already be like Sayers, or you can be right like her, or you should, maybe you should try to be like her in certain ways. As I read Delfonso's book, I thought that, I thought to myself, Lewis, like Sayers, is, okay, uh, this is a weird adjective, but we're going to go with it. He's thick. He and she, they were both consistent through and through 
their life modeled what they wrote. I can't say it in quite the way I want to, but I get more of a picture. So y'all know the difference between wood, if you're hammering something into wood, like a stud or something, and sheetrock. Um, if you put a nail through sheetrock, which is, you know, most of our walls are covered with that, um, it'll look good, but it'll go right through, right? There's nothing to hold it in there. There's just chalk on the other side of a, of a sheet of sheetrock. It'll hold up the nail, but it won't hold up. Uh, the nail won't hold any pressure. Like you can just take the nail right back out again. If you put a frame in there, it's going to slip right off. But a nail in wood holds because a wood has inner consistency. It's thick and solid in a way that sheetrock isn't. Now, if you think about that nail being the relentless eye of scholarship that drives itself into people's lives, biographies written about a person, commentaries written about a person, journal articles written about a person and their works. Um, that's a lot to hold up to. And you often find when you're reading about people you like or celebrities you like that they may have good ideas, but look, he was an alcoholic or so-and-so wrote children's novels, but it turns out she actually hated children. Um, it isn't really the case with Lewis and Sayers. Their lives hold up. They were consistent. They tried to be what they advertised themselves to be. It, to use biblical Im imagery, they were good trees bearing good fruit. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that in both of their, in, in both cases. Okay, reason five, why there should be more Sayers for more people. And this kind of speaks to the thing I just said, you can trust Sayers's work. She believes strongly that an individual should be represented by his or her own work. And I'm not saying any theological point here. Obviously, God looks at the heart and Sayers would have had to affirm that being a Christian. But at the very least, she demanded competence of herself and others. In a way, she reminds me of Ayn Rand. She's at the opposite end of the spectrum theologically, of course. Um, I never made it through Atlas Shrugged. And for various reasons, I don't really want to. But it is striking how at the beginning of Atlas Shrugged, the main character, Dagny Taggart, is trying to fix this business, this railway business that she's inherited. And she wants to do it well, and she wants to do the work in a competent way, efficient, effective, economic way. But she keeps coming up against her brother, who is considering everything else, like old loyalties. How will people feel? We've had this client for a long time. Should we abandon him? And so on and so forth. His priority is to like deal with people's emotions Dagny's priority is to get the job done and get it done well. Sayers would have had some sympathy with this. One of my favorite quotes of hers is written to C.S. Lewis, and she says this, talking about Christian art or art that advertises itself as Christian, but it's just not really not that good. Um, she says this, I don't fancy showing up a lot of stuff to the carpenter's son and saying, well, I admit that the wood was green and the joints untrue and the glue bad, but hey, it was all church furniture. All right. Another thing about you can trust her work. So anyway, just to back up, like her scholarship is good. Like if you actually want to research her stuff, research her stuff on Dante, research her stuff on Song of Roland and other things, like it holds up. And I'm not going to go into this, but in the midst of her own writing, she did quite a bit of other work, first for her household, then for the war effort, and then for a group called the St. Anne Society, which we'll talk about another time. So I guess this episode is just another way of trying to introduce or remind people of the range of her qualities in life and in her published works. If it feels slightly rose tinted, I think I'm okay with that. To be honest, 
she approved of that sort of behavior. That's one of the things she loved about her friend Charles Williams. He could get enthusiastic about things. He once wrote to her, It's a solemn thought that we are loosening the chains of generations only by saying on and off how very good this is. Thank you for joining me as we begin our second season of the Dorothy L. Sayers podcast. I have no idea what the episodes will be about, but there will be one every other Friday with lots of good stuff to chew on. For questions and comments, please email me at lindsayann, that's Ann with an E, shoal at gmail.com, or leave a comment on the YouTube edition of this episode.